Hello, poetry lovers. Welcome to the Poetry Hood podcast. It has been my absolute honor to record this wonderful conversation with Carlos Andres Gomez, who is a poet that is filled with insights, experience, and just radiates with love and kindness. He recently published his beautiful poetry book, which I highly recommend, titled Ijito, which is available on Noon.com as well as Amazon. Special thanks and shout out to Emirates Airline Festival of Literature for inviting the Poetry Hood to be a part of their outstanding festival that they've set up in 2020 and for facilitating this podcast recording. Poetry lovers, I present to you my conversation with Carlos. My entire wardrobe was Canal Street original. Knock off chic. Adolescent sleek in my double XL blue and black bubble jacket. Yeah, I was inside the club and what? Inside an oversized coat, coated in sweat and old spice. A kid eyeing 16 but not quite there. I wanted it all, Chico. Learner's permit, the latest Jordans in baby blue, maybe a wink from the pretty Boricua in social studies. And when Biggie's verse dropped in Only You... He was in that room and teaching us how to live elevated from that third floor wasteland towering above India Point. So we sang sour-throated and nostalgic for times we hadn't yet lived in unison like we wrote it till our voices cracked and spilled over and between every rift but in the throng of lost kids where I finally found a self I loved, it all came together like we could remix any wreckage and make it into a stage to slay so we swayed and grinded like our lives were a music video tribute, hip to hip. I'm actually very honored that you reached out to me and told me let's do this podcast. No, I'm honored. I'm honored. I'm I'm in- inspired by what you've you've built here in Dubai. You know, I, I I always think of I came up as a poet in community. You know, I, and so I mm. think when I travel abroad and I have the incredible opportunity to do a festival like this, I want to connect with other communities that are happening. You know, I've always thought about poetry as not a solitary endeavor. I understand there are times we're writing by ourselves, but I've always thought about it as something that is processed in community with other writers. So that's my favorite part of what this is. And that's why I was excited to have an opportunity to chat with you. This is the first time where this has happened, where someone reached out to me, told me, I, I want to be on your podcast. <laughs> Usually I'm begging people, <laughs> come on, please. Uh, but yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, so I, I wanted to start off by uh, mentioning something. I, so I read your book, Egypto, yeah. uh-huh. and uh, there's a poem that really spoke to me. Sure. It's called Pronounced. Yes, yes. And if you don't mind, I'd like to yeah. read like yeah. two stanzas Absolutely. from that poem Absolutely. Uh, that really hit home. Uh, it goes, you are still trying to retrieve the sounds you once dreamt in. You hardly remember your mother tongue. You are trying to pull something usable from the wreckage. Yet it all feels familiar. Your best friend, 
compliments your clean pronunciation, the way you have learned to let go of everything you once called home. I love it. It's it's so like it spoke to me oh, because oh, yeah. uh, to be honest, I've uh, um, my mother tongue is Arabic, uh-huh. and some at some point during my life, I kind of started losing it, yeah. and English was creeping in. Yes, for whatever reasons. Yes, yes. and uh, I find myself currently now in yeah. a state of like trying to salvage my Arabic language yeah. from the wreckage. Yep. So yep. I was wondering, what is your story with your mother tongue? Yes. Oh my gosh, um, that, I, I'm I'm so moved and honored that it spoke to you in that way. I mean, that that's the hope with any poem. I think that writing something that's so highly personal oftentimes does resonate with something that's that's universal mm-hmm. and that can speak across time and space and language and experience. So for me, English is actually my third language, third, and yet my <laughs> dominant language, and yet the language that I mostly operate in now. Mm. So my first languages were Portuguese and Spanish. I lived in Brazil when I was very little, and uh, I've forgotten all of my Portuguese, and uh, I and I forgot a lot of my Spanish, got a lot of it back, lost it, got a bunch back. Wow. It's still in process. And I think part of that was, in my, in my context, was my father arrived in the United States as an immigrant from Colombia when he was 13 years old in 1961. He didn't speak a word of English. In that era, his parents just threw him in a school and said, go figure it out. And everyone spoke English. And of course, he failed all the classes because he didn't speak the language. And, uh, you know, and, and so I think that's so unheard of. Like, imagine <laughs> that happening today. Oh, my gosh. Like, no, I know. I know. But but uh, but I think that whether it was conscious or subconscious, I think that when I was operating and playing with my sister and we were speaking Portuguese or I was I was thinking in Spanish or whatever it was, I think there was a part of my father that whether consciously or subconsciously panicked and feared that I would experience what he went through feeling alienated because he did not speak English or feeling um, othered or feeling or being disparaged or um, being excluded. And so I remember getting to a point when I was five years old and they said only English. Mm. We only speak English. And that's when I started to lose those two other languages. And so it's a, I have a very complicated, loaded relationship to language generally. And it's one of those things people say, oh, yeah, so what's what's your dominant language or what do you speak Spanish? And it's, you know, my Spanish is a lot better than I lead on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I have a very complicated relationship with it because of that. And this is a great that that poem is capturing. Actually, that was a real thing that my best friend in fifth grade when I was 10 years old said to me. And um, mm-hmm. it was like a sword that he thought was a compliment, right, you know, yeah. and it was something that was sort of highlighting this profound grief and loss that I felt um, that he saw as something that was a positive. And I think that's something that a lot of uh, children of immigrants can relate to or a lot of people who live in sort of multicultural, fractured, culturally displaced or misplaced upbringings i think um and and beyond obviously but uh yeah i think it's something that um i've had a lot of people who've who've read that poem or who've heard that poem Mm. um have approached me about and they've said oh my gosh that's my experience with uh you know tagalog or cantonese or uh you know arabic so so yeah that, that means a lot yeah beautiful um i also was wondering like uh since it it probably hits home with a lot of people uh, whenever you're sitting down and writing poetry, do yeah. you ever think of how far and wide your poem is going to reach? Wow. Where like, just like in my case, halfway around the world. 
I mean, you know, no. I, I, uh, I, I think if I thought about that, I think it would probably stop the process. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you never know. I mean, it's always it's also counterintuitive. You know, it's there are poems that you think no one will see, and that becomes the poem that peop- resonates with people everywhere, and, and vice versa. So I think for me, um, I always start with, you know, maybe it's like a single image or a single picture. Mm. or a single exchange or maybe a word or a concept and i kind of slowly sort of interrogate that and build out from there um but i i you know I, I have clear ideas in different poems about who i'm speaking to or what i'm holding up to the lights but uh i'm never thinking okay i hope this or i'm planning for this poem to have two million people read it or whatever i, mm-hmm. I think i'm always starting with with something small that i'm looking at very closely and then holding up to the light and uh, to me, I think that's counterintuitively or paradoxically the way that I think my poems often have the most profound and universal resonance is when I look at something very specifically or yeah. in a way that's highly personal. Um, I think those are the poems that paradoxically are the ones that, that people deeply resonate with. And they'll say, oh, my gosh, I'm not Colombian or Latino or or speak Spanish, but um, I'm Yemeni, and I feel the same way about that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I, I even uh, thought of that when uh, you had multiple accounts of gunshots oh, yeah, in, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. in your poetry mm-hmm. book, and, uh, you know, like, gunshots is not a big thing in our region. Yeah, right? yeah, you never yeah. hear of it, but it's still, like, it thunders through your poems, and you can relate to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The first time I got pulled over, I turned to the classical station, made sure to elevate my voice an octave, blinked wide and scared, rested shaking hands on the steering wheel so he could see the white of my eyes and emerald irises in the late May sun. He didn't ask my name, never saw license or registration, said just take it easy. So I did. So I do. But my son, now 14 years and four months from his first driver's test, is black. What will he do? How much of my stare and smart mouth are imprinted? How will he understand? Why I can't sleep each night he's away from home and I look just like the men who too easily mistake the dark silhouette of his wallet for a gun. Is there a story behind how you got into poetry? Yes, there actually is. Um, so when I was 17 years old, I um, I hid it from almost everyone. It was hidden from almost everyone I knew besides mm. my best friend and my, my girlfriend at the time. But I'd been writing poems for six months and having a little bit of an identity crisis about it because I'd been a, a basketball player up to that point in my life. I didn't think of myself as an artist or a writer. And uh, this great poet by the name of Martin Espada came to my high school and read from his book, Imagine the Angels of Bread, and it was the first time I heard a poet that felt like he was he was reading pages out of a journal I had buried in my chest. Mm-hmm. And 
I'd never been so moved. And after that day and after that performance, I recognized that I could not live without poetry. And I think it became, um, it became a way for me to survive a very difficult time in my life. And after that performance, I walked up to Martin and uh, bought a copy of his book. And he looked at me. I could barely eke out my name. And he took the book and he wrote, Para Carlos, Poeta del Futuro, Martin Espada, which means for Carlos, Poet of the Future. And he, he ultimately gave me permission to, to embrace my identity as a poet and as a, and as a writer. And uh, coming full circle nearly 20 years later, he's um, the person who wrote the introduction to Ijito. So, uh, so it's, it's been incredible to think about that journey and, and things coming full circle. He's someone who I had the opportunity to, to, to do some readings with and sort of kept in touch with over the years and, and been a, a kind of, a kind of mentor in some ways. And, uh, yeah, I think who I am today as a writer in many ways has been made possible by Martin Espada, by others. But I think if I was to pick one person and say he's, this person is the main reason I'm a writer, um, I would have to say Martin Espada. Amazing. Shout out to Martinez. <laughs> Shout out to Martin. <laughs> I do share a similar, somewhat similar yeah. thing is that yeah. I went under a pseudonym for okay. a while. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it was one of the corniest okay, you okay, could ever okay. think of. I love it. It was called Pondering Thoughts. Yes. Okay. I love it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, like uh, for me, it was after like a year maybe or two. Sure. I was just sitting at home and I had an job as an auditor yep. and yep. I was just like I didn't like where I was in life and I just thought to myself I just want to take one step towards the right direction just yes. one yes I just sat there thinking and I looked at these set of poems that I had I told myself why am I so shy from saying that this is me oh this is yes. so annoying wow, that's uh, profound yeah I'm caged in yeah so I, I came up with the idea of let me create a cool platform for me to share my poetry and maybe solve the same problem for many other people I and love that and that, that was the birth of the poetry hit exactly wow yeah. I love that right there and then I bought the website oh, and oh I love so that so on so forth and now we're here I love that brilliant <laughs> brilliant <laughs> This is a question I ask a lot of people, sure. poets and sure. poetry lovers, and I get different answers okay. all the time. Do you think a poet is born a poet, or do you think the environment uh, nurtures him to become a poet? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I'll say, I'll say for me... Um, I think I was made a poet by the circumstances of my childhood. I lived in four countries. I juggled seven, eight different languages. I went to 12 different schools um, before I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And so most of my childhood was spent as an outsider, as kind of a culturally displaced kid, as somebody who knew what it was like to come home at the end of a school day and have no friends. And uh, I think that instilled in me this, I think, comfort with both being by myself mm -hmm. but also being somebody who watched and observed and also complicated my perceptions of those around me because I think I didn't have the the luxury of of being somebody who belonged socially and being able to sort of cast people aside I think I had to sort of challenge my assumptions and be more open to I don't know I guess embracing the the very dimensions of the people around me because I, I wasn't somebody who carried had a lot of like social leverage until later in my life and later in, in my schooling but yeah I, I think just 
just watching and listening really carefully. Um, there's nothing like being uh, left out or being an outsider that will force you to find creative ways to fill that that time and that space. And even the, I think the um, the grief that comes along with being on the outside. And so I think for me, the way that I, I guess, built meaning out of feeling on the outside was I watched people and I noticed the small little moments and the little glimpses of things that were easy to overlook or that often uh, other people would, would not catch. But me, because I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a lot of things distracting me or pulling me away. I could just watch this person by themselves, you know, pushing that apple across the table in the cafeteria to that other kid, you know? So um, I think that's, I'll just say in my case, I can't speak for everybody else. I'm not everybody else, but I speak sure. for me. Um, maybe there was a poet always in there meant to come out. Maybe it wouldn't have come out if I didn't have my childhood, but my childhood definitely demanded that I I develop the eye that I think as a watcher and as an observer that I know from my own artistic practice is vital. Yeah. And you see it now. So much of my work is autobiographically at least oriented in some way, at least as a springboard. And many of them are just personal narratives that are told through a poem. So uh, you definitely see that, I think, play out in a lot of my work, um, particularly the last the last few years. Yeah, I like the awareness of uh, uh, the awareness that you have in how you came up to this point. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really, really insightful, actually. Yeah. Thank you. It's opening my mind to some <laughs> things of how it. maybe I got here. As yeah, well. yeah. So I, I just watched you perform. Okay. Tonight. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Performance. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you see yourself performing a ritual inside your head before you go on stage, or is it just Carlos the entire time? Wow, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, I think just because of how many of how many readings I've done, just the amount of repetitions and it being thousands upon thousands at this point, I think in a lot of those scenarios, I used to have rituals to prepare, but I think that was disrupted so many times, as is often the case when people do things thousands of times, that uh, I sort of let go of those rituals. I think if there's any ritual, um, I think that there's kind of a an immense stillness that I become rooted in, in my body, um, in my literal and figurative body when I get up in front of an audience. And uh, I don't know, for me, I think the process of performing is is kind of like meditative play mm. and uh, just being intensely present and trying to authentically and genuinely live in my body and be open to this moment of connecting with the people in front of me. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's the only ritual I can think is just being rooted in an epic stillness <laughs> that uh, I find extremely uh, replenishing and also just enthralling. I really like that uh, phrase, epic stillness. <laughs> It's, it really does describe the the moment that you step on stage because uh -huh. there's just this silence and everyone's just like, all right, come on, <laughs> we're waiting for you. <laughs> and you. you're like, you guys have no idea what I got in store for you. <laughs> I love it. I've I've learned a lot, to, to be honest, during my, my very <laughs> small uh, career in 
performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, yeah, every moment is a learning experience. Yes, you know? every, exactly. Every repetition, every time up there. Yeah, absolutely. And the poem that you might have performed like already three times or four, five, six. Sure, sure, sure. Is changing and evolving. Yeah, it's never the same. Absolutely. And absolutely. I think that's very important to absolutely. like not stay rigid on how your poem is going to be yeah. performed. I never do that. I, I, I always yeah. say one of the most important things for me is I never replicate anything. Everything I do is the first and last time I will do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think a good sign of that is I love when, when I've done a poem that I've done many times and someone will say, who knows me and knows my work, will say, wow, what's that poem called? I've never heard that poem before. <laughs> and I'll say, you've heard that poem about five times. But that's brilliant that you don't believe that you've heard it, yeah. which means that it was so new and so fresh that it almost took on a life of its own as though it was a new poem. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the magic of just being present. And also I try to listen to my own, listen to the moments that are kind of, that are just kind of emerging as I'm going along in a piece. And sometimes, uh, you know, in the, in the great moments, I'll surprise myself or something will happen (laughs) in the space that'll change the trajectory of what I thought I was going to do. Morning, Rikers Island. Physics and light pierce the hollow stench of the forgotten gymnasium stripped naked of clocks. All the adolescent boys stop, offer their grief to each other like water. Glancing out the only window they all share, a single ray unfolds its warmth across the dusty belly of the thudded parquet. And here's the miracle. The sun frees everyone to sing. Which book have you gifted the most? That, that gifted the most yeah. to people. Oh my gosh! Wow. Um, wow, that's that's a that's a great question. I'm trying to think of the of the books that I've gifted the most. Um, I think one of them is definitely my my favorite novel of all time, which is by my favorite writer of all time, uh, "The Bluest Eye" by Toni Morrison. Um, there's something about that novel that. Uh, resonates so profoundly with me and also I think in so many different ways is such an invitation towards humanity and resilience and dismantling the toxic and horrific systems and paradigms of thinking that I think try to terrorize our own sense of self-worth and obviously Mm -hmm. the poem centers uh, black girls and black women as so much of Toni Morrison's work does but um you know, it's really profound that a book that does that, I also feel speaks very much to my experience in different ways. Although I'll never know what it's like, obviously, to be a black girl or a black woman. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's very profound. My my father, I remember asking my father a number of years ago, I said, what's your favorite book? And he said, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I remember being shocked by that. You know, a Colombian immigrant came to the United States when he was 13 and in 1961 and and he points to this book and says that's his favorite book of all time that Mm. um i think speaks to work again which i think is something that i try to do hopefully uh so highly personal and specific and yet can resonate so far beyond 
the maybe perceived demographic limitations, I mean, in that time period in particular with Toni Morrison, and see that it resonates with with me, the son and, and the father and, you know, Colombian immigrant and people who come from a wide range of identities and backgrounds and experiences. So, yeah, I, I would say the, the bluest eye. There, there are other ones, but I think that's probably the one. Yeah. Uh, have, have you been to Colombia? I have many, many, many times. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And have you seen the poetry scene? You know in what? Columbia? Actually, interestingly enough, I've never gone there and checked out the poetry scene. Oh, uh, okay. it, 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 I, I, and maybe that's because uh, you go there for. I go there to be with family, and True. my family is not trying to go to the, <laughs> <laughs> the open mic. Um, you know, there there are kind of like prescribed rhythms. Yeah. Of time with family. Yes. Um, so, but but I think that's something for my next trip to Colombia. I definitely will seek it out. There, there is the, you know, the, the Medellin Inter- International Poetry Festival. My father's and his family are actually from Medellin in, mm. in Antioquia in Colombia. And uh, that's, that, that, that festival, I think, is probably at the top of my bucket list as a, as a dream festival to visit someday. I've never performed in South America before, um, though I've traveled many times to South America. So um, It would be coming around as well. It would be coming full circle, right? Yeah. I mean, to, to be where my... My father uh, was was born, and where he where he, you know where the family has such deep and profound ties. So uh, yeah, I think that's my next trip to Colombia. That is, um, I need to check out the poetry scene definitely. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, so what about the poetry scene in uh, New York? Oh yeah. Oof. Oh man. Yeah. I'd love to get a taste of that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Tell I me, mean, what is it? No, it's incredible. I mean, it, it's something that I, I said, it was a friend's a book launch actually last Saturday and I was there just for one night. And I was saying to a lot of my friends who've come up through the poetry scene, you know, for, for a solid decade, for 10 years, I went to poetry probably about three nights a week for 10 years. Three nights, three nights a, a week? week for 10 years. Wow. And so every Monday I'd go to bar 13 um, every uh, Thursday, I'd go to the Bowery Poetry Club, and every Friday, I'd go to the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. And uh, just to think about, you know, the kind of people that I would just be standing alongside in the venue were incredible. You know what I mean? And these are um, poets now who've won National Book Awards and Pulitzers, and gone on to be, you know, to be icons and legends from, you know, Patricia Smith, uh, Ross Gay, Tyimba Jess. Um, Rachel McKibbins, so many different people, you know, all these people, I think, to think about on any given night, that was just normal being out in New York. And I think that that kind of sharpens you in a, in a particular kind of way that I don't think any other any other space could do in the same way. So I think I, I feel an immense amount of gratitude. And I think even now I'm, I'm still trying to sort of catch up to the um, just how miraculous it was that I was able to just reside in that space and believe it was normal. When you started off doing uh, performing in New York, was it as big as it is now or has it grown? Wow. I mean, yeah, I, I suppose it goes in waves. I mean, obviously the scene has evolved and changed, you know, um, and I think every literary scene kind of moves and evolves. Um, and there are also things that we, we have now that, that did not exist when I was initially in the scene. I mean, for much of that decade, uh, YouTube did not exist. True. Uh, there yes. was not social media. Um, so there were, there, were, there were things that I think have influenced and shaped um, the aesthetics of how, of how poetry exists in the more sort of popular consciousness that in that scene just was not a factor. And I think that, and I think in many ways that 
allowed the, the, the community to be a lot more cohesive mm-hmm. in ways that I think that, that cohesion has been uh, ma- ma- perhaps made more difficult because people at home can sit home and on YouTube, they feel like they can watch 2,000 poems if they want to. Yeah, <laughs> or, or they can, from all over the world, mm-hmm. in that era, if you wanted to watch poetry, you had to go see it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then once you, when you did that enough, the people who saw your book would say, Let's, do you have a new poem? <laughs> so you were constantly generating new work to not feel like you were uh, letting down everyone who mm, saw you every week. True. So, um, yeah, so I think that really, um, that really, uh, you know, as we say, you know, in, in, in the New York and in, in the States, you know, it helped me like cut my teeth. It helped me build my chops, you know, and uh, not just doing that, but also, you know, I grew up performing at the Apollo and performing at other venues around New York. And so, wow, you know, New York, impressive. New York yeah. is ruthless. You know what I mean? If, if, if you don't command a space, I mean, they will chew you up and spit you out. <laughs> so you have to have a really clear sense about your purpose when you get up there every time, or you might literally be booed off the stage by 5,000 people at the Apollo, which I've experienced. You know oh, what I mean? Really? I've, I've, I've won at the Apollo and gotten a, gotten a standing ovation, and I've been booed off in nine seconds. So I've, <laughs> I've experienced both extremes. And, uh, you know, that, that, I think that's all part of that. Uh, you know, I'd hate to focus on a negative experience, but can you <laughs> oh, no, please it was, it was a very elaborate? Po- oh, no. It was a very positive experience. And the funny thing, too, which I think is also a really important lesson about being up in front of an audience is the reason I got booed off actually had nothing to do with the poem that I had. I actually didn't even get to the poem. So hmm. there's this there's this uh, it's kind of this iconic, sacred um, kind of uh, what, what, what would I call it? It's this sacred piece of a of a, of a trunk called the Tree of Hope. Um, at the Apollo, and and when every person that walks on stage is supposed to rub the tree of hope for good luck, and also as a sign of respect to mm-hmm. all the greats who've gone through um, the Apollo in its you know ninety uh, year history, and uh, I was so enthusiastic to get out there and get up in front of the mic that I walked past the tree of hope and forgot to rub it. Oh my! So God. and then I went back to rub it. And by that time, I had this feeling of just sort of turning my back and, and the Apollo has all the things going up and about 5,000 people sold out. And the booing was so loud that I could feel the boos going, hitting off the wall behind me. And, and, and it felt like somebody, like a thousand hands slapping me on my back. That's how loud, that's how, that's how loud yeah. the sound was of the booing. Um, wow. And so, so yeah, so, but, it, but it, was, it was a great experience. I mean, I, I cherish, you know, I think generally in my journey, I cherish... Um, I cherish the rejections. I cherish the spectacular failures. You know, I've had, I've had, you know, a lot of markers that people would think are, you know, people might point to and say are, are successes or things that gesture towards me moving in the right direction. But uh, I mean, for every one of those instances, there are, you know, I mean, literally hundreds of of epic failures. And mm-hmm. I think those are things that make me, you know, all those repetitions make me very make me feel resilient and prepared on any stage I step into. I don't feel like any stage is too big Mm -hmm. because I've been in enough moments where I've been spectacular in succeeding or in my own mind or been present or commanded the room. And as many times or more, I've also spectacularly failed. So I think that gives me a permission to kind of let go of a lot of that. It's, it's honestly really good that you have an honest, um, gauge, Mm -hmm. Of when you don't do well, mm-hmm. you have people coming up and telling you you're not. Oh yeah, you're, you're not hitting us the way you should be. Oh yeah, in New, in New York they just you'll know quickly, which is good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Uh, That's how you built your craft. Right? It's a rare gift. Yeah, no, it's it's a really profound gift to get that feedback. I mean, so much of my artistic career, I'm very grateful for having not just 
random people, but also like a lot of mentors who had the thought and the generosity to tell me when things just were not working or to point me towards things that I needed to help build my tools, whether as a performer or as a writer. Absolutely. Which takes me to my next yeah, uh, yeah. question uh, about mentorship. Yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on mentorship? And does it come in other forms other than like an individual? And uh, I would also like to hear your thoughts on how would you go about seeking mentors? Wow, that's a great question. I think mentorship is, I mean, when I think about whether, you know, it's like me trying to grow as a man or trying to grow as a writer, it is only made possible because of the generosity of, of mentors that have helped guide me and helped challenge me and hold me accountable and nurtured me and supported me through difficult moments. Um, you know, I think for me, a lot of the mentorship that I, that I experienced and that I think I hopefully paid back um, to younger generations as I, as I got older and developed through the scene was when I first came into the scene, I, you know, in, in, the, in 1999, I first went into the New Yorican Poets Cafe and I was a 17-year-old high schooler and uh, with very undeveloped tools and, and, and uh, as a performer. And I had writers and, and poets from the older generation, which, in the, you know, in poetry meant like 10 years older than me, who were 27. <laughs> and they, they were very generous in sort of pulling me aside and supporting me, but also challenging me and also demanding more and also demanding that I, and they, they would hand me books and say, oh, go read this. You, you know, you should read, you should read this. Or, you know what, your poem ends there. Don't keep going. Or, or you know what, when you got up there, why were you doing this? And then having me interrogate things that maybe I hadn't really reflected on that I just sort of had done impulsively. And so I think that's something that I always kept in my head. And then when I was 27 or I was 29, I would see some of those younger poets doing many of the things that I did. Uh-huh. And, and I tried to pay that forward. So I think it was more, particularly in the New York scene, was was more of an organic thing. There wasn't really a, a process or a protocol. It was more just, you know, we're here every week. We have a certain kind of candor and a certain kind of trust with each other that, that's built from the kind of cohesion of this, you know, or the, the, the sort of cohesive bond we have in this community. So um, it would just sort of happen organically. But uh, but again, I think that's that's changed in some ways. Like even what you're doing now is really incredible. You know, I've heard that there's there's the attendance has been kind of dropping in a lot of the U.S. at, at poetry events. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes more difficult. I, I'm i a strong proponent of, of, of believing that for the kind of intensive mentorship that's required an actual physical space where you are present with each other and it can happen in some kind of organic format that for me feels like the most profound way that it can happen but the world that we live in is is that's becoming more difficult i know there are virtual ways that that can happen um i when i two years ago when i graduated from my mfa program I had supervisors, faculty members who I corresponded with. Via, we would write letters to each other, um, and that was a really profound, you know, means of mentorship. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I think there is something really powerful about having a physical space, a hub that you and other writers say we have this general agreement that as long as you know. My sister is not getting married or I don't have I'm not working overtime. I'll be here every Monday or I'll be here on the third Thursday of every month. And we come here and and the agreement is we support each other and we challenge each other. And for those who've been around longer or those who are just stepping in, we're going to help each other. And we're going to to build a kind of lineage here that we we guard very with a lot of passion and a lot of purpose and a lot of pride. And so I think uh I don't know. When I think of mentorship, I mean, mentorship is is everything. It's everything. It's uh, to me, it's 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 one of the most generous expressions of legacy and lineage. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. is to say, I was 17 and the elders in that scene helped guide me. And now I'm seen as an elder <laughs> in a way in this, in this community. And so now I try to pay that forward with people who are just, just walking into this space um, you know, cotton mouthed and wide eyed like I did in 1999 mm-hmm. in the New Poets Cafe. <laughs> Beautiful. Then you hit the nail on the head, in my opinion, uh, about the, the mentorship question. Uh, it really does take a space. Yes. yes. Building that yes, space. Yes. It's not easy. No, it's not. It's not. <sighs> Getting a united front yes. from an audience yes. and Oof. poets and people yeah. to agree that this is going to happen every Yes. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. And to be there every single time. Yeah. It, who who is setting up these events? Yeah, that's great. I mean, to 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 be honest, a lot of the the greatest mentors and leaders and literary citizens in the New York scene who were exceptionally gifted and selfless curators of the scene. I'll just say in New York City, uh Mahogany L Brown is one of those people. The, the 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 I think the longest standing um, slam mistress of the Friday Night Poetry Slam, which is the biggest, most legendary poetry slam at the New Yorkian. Um, Jean Ann Verlee is another one who was the the main curator for many years at Urbana at the Bowery Poetry Club. Rachel McKibbins, um, back when it was Louder Arts, but at Bar Thirteen, which was the, another venue in New York City. Um, Lynn Prokop is another person at Bar Thirteen. There just there have been names like that. Um, it's overwhelmingly been women. It's overwhelmingly been women of color. Um, it's in many cases been black women. So I think um, yeah. So I think uh, yeah. In, in New York City, I'm just and I'm grateful to to call all those names, all those people, friends, um, and people that I hold very dear. But yeah, I think I think a lot of that really selfless and often thankless work made possible these vibrant communities that sprung up. Um, they, of course, they had their you know there was there were complexities and there was you know there were positives and negatives. It's, it's difficult to hold together a community, of course, and it's a lot mm-hmm. of writers. So you know, but but I think they made possible these different avenues of mentorship that otherwise, without their love and their generosity and their leadership. That stuff is not possible. It's mm-hmm. so difficult, as you're saying, to be able to curate a space where people feel permission and also feel energized about locking into their calendar and pen True. to be there at this time and speak on the open mic or listen. And then as a curator, you have the other issue of how am I going to reach a mass audience that exactly. will come and exactly. Exactly. experience this poetry? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a constant yeah. struggle. Yeah, let me yeah. just say that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, I think. Yeah, we are good. Thank you so much, Jamil. What a, what a joy to chat with you. Of I'm course. already really moved by by kind of the generosity and the passion of of who you are and what you're doing. And I I can't wait for Saturday evening um, to just really get a real sense of what poetry hood is all about. It's yes, been great. Awesome. I'm cheering for you. Cool. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Jamil. I appreciate you. Cheers.